I can remember as a kid and as an adult too when uh, our family would get together uh, for Christmas and we would have the usual foods and the gifts exchange and, and we would play games and things like that. Usually a euchre game would break out at some, some point and we would have two or three tables going uh, at the same time with euchre and uh, we'd just have an absolute blast. But at some point in the evening, invariably, my dad would say something along these lines. You know, Ma, I think this is the best Christmas we've ever had. Every year, right? And I know that there was no possible way that we could keep one-upping each year how just wonderful Christmas was. Is there anybody else in your family that, that kind of does that? that that's, or is it just my dad? Okay, it was just my dad, you know. Uh, okay, I'm, I'm good with that. Uh, one of the last Christmases we, we had with dad, we tried to beat him to the punch, you know. We were sitting around, and one of us would be like, hey, you know, we think this is the best Christmas we've ever had. And dad would just sit back and laugh. But as dad grew in his faith, I think what was happening in his heart and in his mind is that he realized that the greatest Christmas can't be found in anything that you can buy or sell or ever hope to be. The greatest gift can't be found under a tree. It's in a baby sent to die for you and me. Um, I feel like the Lord gave me that song a couple of years ago for my Christmas CD. It's the inspiration behind this series that we are starting today. And I think every generation, when you think back about it, every, every generation has those moments where you know exactly where you were when a certain event happened. You know what I'm talking about? There are some of you who are sitting out there today, you know exactly where you were, you knew, know exactly what was going on when John F. Kennedy was shot. How many of you can just put yourself there and you re remember that? Or maybe you remember when Neil Armstrong walked on the moon and, and some of us uh, in, in another generation know exactly where we were at when the first space shuttle blew up. I can remember being freshman biology and they pulled the old, the, the, the big old TV in on a cart and we plugged it in and we watched the coverage of that. Uh, a lot of you uh, probably, you think about what you were doing on 9-11 when you heard that the planes crashed into the, uh, the Twin Towers and, and maybe some of you are you know, just so young that the only major thing you remember is when you first heard about COVID and how everything was kind of shut down. Moments like these are big. Moments like these are game changers. Moments like these might even cause us to shift culture a little bit. And sometimes they're so big that our lives and the way that we do life, they're, they're never the same. And a lot of times these things unfortunately happen because of negative things that happen. These things, they, they strike with no warning and they introduce some uncertainty into our lives. And I would say that probably right now there are more uncertainties in our world than many of us have ever experienced in our lifetime. Would you agree with me on that? Maybe more than at any point in time in our lives, there's more uncertainty in our world right now than, than, than ever before. We worry about the economy. We worry about what Russia's going to do. We worry about what China's going to do. We worry about what North Korea's going to do. We worry about what is happening in our culture. We see the senseless mass shootings. We see the murder of innocent babies through abortion. We see that 
in our society, what the Bible calls sin is often celebrated and what the Bible calls righteous is often um, labeled as bigoted. And we watch the news and we watch the headlines, we scroll the internet and we see all of these negative things happen. And it doesn't take long before we start to become anxious and you really start to get down in the dumps. You, you can even fall into the point of depression. And I'm not trying to bring us down here today. You think, oh wow, man, we just say, it's Christmas. And then Ron's like, hey, let's bring us all down. I'm not trying to bring us down. Quite the opposite. Because Jesus came, one event in the history of mankind that changed everything for the better is when Jesus came as a baby to pay the ultimate price for our sins, right? It's been a rough couple of years in our world, and if there's ever a time when the world needs to know the truth of Christmas, if there's ever been a time when the world needs to know about the real Christmas, it's, it's now. It can't be found in anything you can buy or, or do or be. It's found in Jesus. And so as we enter this season, uh, the, the, a lot of churches call it the Advent season. We refer to that every once in a while. The Advent season is basically saying uh, something is coming. It's a, traditionally a time of expectation. It's something that, that we're waiting for. It's something that we are... Um, uh, having this great amount of anticipation and longing for. And so Advent is just an extension of what happened on Christmas, right? And so what it does is it links the present and the past and the future and all of that together. And it offers us this opportunity to share just like the Israelites did in this ancient longing for the Messiah, even though we're not waiting for him to come like he did as a baby, we're waiting for him to come back for us and put an end to all this junk that's going on in our world today, right? And so Advent gives us the opportunity to look back and see what happened on that particular Christmas, the very first one that happened 2,000 years ago, and it offers us the opportunity to have the greatest Christmas that we can have in our lives right now, but it also gives us the opportunity to wait and anticipate the second coming of Jesus Christ. And so what we're going to do here for the next few weeks is we're going to focus on what the greatest Christmas is that we can have. What does it mean to us? Far too often our friends, our, 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 um, uh, our schedules, our lives, our, 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 our just very existence becomes frenzied. Kendall already referred to it. We start in October putting up our Christmas lights and we start, the, 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 the stores start promoting their Black Friday sales in, in October and, and they start, you know, as soon as Halloween, I mean, you're not even finished with the Halloween candy yet and, and the stores are starting to put the Christmas decorations up. I mean, I'm not kidding. The other day, I literally put down my pumpkin spice and picked up my peppermint right there just boom boom you know just that fast and and we're into it and things can get really really crazy that this season of hope this season of peace this season of love and joy can quickly turn into this season of disruption this season of chaos and so we need to prepare our hearts and we need to place our hearts in the right place and and focus on the story that is greater than ours see that's the problem I think we get too focused on our own lives our own story and we forget about what the story's all about and that's Christmas and how we can have hope and peace and joy and love. And it's not pretending that everything's just okay. It's not pretending like you don't have problems. 
But it's a, a season of going into this deep reality that in spite of our problems, in spite of our uncertainty, we can have all of these things. We can have the greatest Christmas that we could ever have. So whatever your anxiety level is, whatever your stress level is, whatever your uncertainty level is, I want you to think about uh, this season of expectation of what it means to have Jesus in your life every day and what it means to anticipate him coming again. I believe the greatest Christmas is found in the hope and the peace and the joy and the love of Jesus Christ and anything else that's out there that is being offered to you is very, very secondary. And now, we start to feel sorry for ourselves sometimes, right? We look at our world. I already alluded to all the junk that's going on in our world, and we start to feel sorry for ourselves. But I want you to think about the fact that in Israel, in the Bible days, it really wasn't all that hunky-dory back then, okay? We think we have it bad today, but you know, Israel did in the days of the Bible as well. And I think we can make a pretty good case that during the time of Jesus, when they, like much of the world probably feels today sometimes, the Israelites felt defeated. They were under the thumb of the Roman Empire. They had to, to live in this harsh reality every single day that we are not our own people necessarily because we're under the thumb. You know, they've been through this history of being conquered by different people, and then God brings them through, and then they conquer another, and God brings them through, and now they're under the oppression of the Roman government. And ever since the time of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, uh, God has been calling his people, and it had been thousands of years of this this. This cycle, being invaded, being released, being invaded. And now here we find ourselves during the birth of Jesus, they are under the thumb of the Romans. Right? And it had been generations, several generations, since God had made that promise to Abraham. And he'd been promising this Messiah for all of these years. And, and he promised that he was going to bless all people through this baby. And the fulfillment of God's covenant and the coming of the Messiah was one day going to make everything right. And it wasn't just this happy idea that would drift into the minds of the Israelites every once in a while and then drift out. It was their deepest hope. It was sustained within them. It encouraged them. It spurred them on in those dark times, especially in those thousands of years of uncertain waiting. I can't help but think there were times when they were thinking, God, you said you were going to give us a Messiah. When's that going to happen? And they clung to this promise that God had, was, was going to deliver them. And in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, God said this to Abraham, I'll bless those who bless you, curse those who treat you with contempt. All the families on earth will be blessed through you. But how long, oh God, do we have to wait? How long can hope survive, especially under these circumstances. And I'm sure that maybe you have found yourself there. You have probably asked yourself this question when you look at our world. Lord, how long? When are you going to say that's enough and come back and take us home? You know, sometimes I, I think it's fair to even ask, were, were, were there even embers of hope still smoldering among the Israelites as we see Luke's biblical account in the Christmas story? Well, the answer is yes. And spoiler alert, in case none of you have learned this yet, um, Jesus the Messiah was born on that first Christmas day. 
Okay, everybody knows that, right? Okay, good, good, good. I don't want to insult your intelligence. I know that's no surprise, but I tell you that because I want to pick up. Everybody knows that he was born, but I want to pick up in an unusual place. Most of the time, we end the Christmas story with Mary and Joseph and the baby's born and all that kind of stuff, and, and, the, and, and we sneak the magi into the nativity scene when really they don't belong there because they didn't come for about three years later because it's more convenient to put everybody together on the stage at the end of a big Christmas production so we can do one final number. That's why they do that, Right? And so Luke's narrative does end, the, uh, or, uh, um, it ends in, does not end uh, the, the night of Jesus' birth. It continues on, right? It, it, not with the, the shepherd's departure, not the three kings, mind you. And that reminds me of another story, a <laughs> little boy. He was from the hills, I think. He asked his dad, he's looking at the nativity scene one Sunday at church, and he says, shouldn't there be a fire truck, daddy, in the nativity scene? And the dad in disbelief said, what are you even talking about? And the little boy said, well, the Bible says that the wise men came from afar. <laughs> Did you know that kid, Caleb? Okay. That, was, that was Caleb. Okay. All right. Spencer, come on, man. Spencer said our thumbs up. I thought it was pretty good. Anyway, so, so we pick up in, in the Bible. Let's, let's turn to Luke 22. I want to read it from Scripture just for two reasons. Uh, Stacy got me a new Bible uh, for my birthday. And then secondly, I wanted to prove to you that I could remember my glasses on a Sunday morning. Okay, so here we go. Luke chapter 22, uh, or Luke chapter 2, beginning with verse 22. It says this. Then it was time for their purification offering, as required by the law of Moses after the birth of a child. And so his parents took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. The law of the Lord says, if a woman's first child is a boy, he must be dedicated to the Lord. So they offered the sacrifice required in the law of the Lord, either a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. At that time, there was a man in Jerusalem named Simeon. He was righteous and devout and was eagerly waiting for the Messiah to come and rescue Israel. The Holy Spirit was upon him and had revealed to him that he would not die until he had seen the Lord's Messiah. That day the Spirit led him to the temple. So when Mary and Joseph came to present the baby Jesus to the Lord as the law required, Simeon was there. And he took the child in his arms and praised God saying, Sovereign Lord, now let your servant die in peace as you have promised. I have seen your salvation, which you have prepared for all people. He is a light to reveal God to the nations, and he is the glory of your people, Israel. Jesus' parents were amazed at what was being said about him. And then Simeon blessed them, and he said to them, the baby's, uh, the baby's mother, or he said this to Mary, the, the baby's mother, this child is destined to cause many in Israel to fall, but he will be a joy to many others. He has been sent as a sign from God, but many will oppose him. As a result, the deepest thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your very soul. He's saying this to Mary. And then in verse 36, Anna the prophet was also there in the temple. She was the daughter of Phanuel from the tribe of Asher, and she was very old. Her husband died when they had been married only seven years. 
And then she lived as a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple, but stayed there day and night, worshiping God with fasting and prayer. She came along just as Simeon was talking with Mary and Joseph, and she began praising God. She talked about the child to everyone who had been waiting expectantly for God to rescue Jerusalem. And so here is Simeon and Anna and their sparks of hope in Israel. More than sparks, actually, they're torches of hope because here's these two people that had been in the temple for all this time and they're expecting God to come through on what he had promised and they believed this and they were waiting for this and everybody knew that they were waiting for this and both Simeon and Anna, they both had lived these long lives and they had seen and they had experienced many things, both the hardship for their people and the pain in their own lives. We know specifically that Anna had been a widow for decades She was in this low position of social status during that time because widows were not necessarily held in high regard. And so Simeon and Anna, they had remained faithfully devoted to God and they're ready to see God act and they're ready to see God do some things. And so, and I don't know if you've ever noticed this before, but in Luke's account, neither Simeon or Anna seem surprised in the least bit about the fact that this baby Jesus is the long-promised Messiah. They weren't shocked because they were expecting it. Everybody else you look at in the Christmas story, everybody else is just kind of taken back like, whoa. And of course, you know, I understand maybe God knew that Simeon and Anna might die of heart attacks if angels appeared to them because that's what he did with other people. You know, and, and so they, they, there was no special announcement like that for them. They were just expecting it. God didn't need an angel to come to them to get the message through to these two because they're giants of the faith and they're ready. They're expecting it. They were tuned in. They were waiting. They were watching. They were listening. They were expecting. They were filled with hope and that hope made them ready to receive what God was about to give to them. And day after day and year after year, Simeon and Anna had served God faithfully and they were inspired and they were fueled by hope that God is still at work even though when we look around and we see the circumstances, they might not seem ideal, but God is still at work even though they couldn't see it. Even if they are surrounded by hardship, even as time passed and they grew older and older, Simeon and Anna held on to hope. And they fostered this hope. They renewed this hope. They set their focus on God and they worshiped God and they served him and they served others, taking one faithful step at a time until God came through. And of course, we know that God came through. And they might have said, this is what he said he was going to do. The Messiah is here. And they rejoiced and they celebrated and they not only were inspired with hope, but then they infused this hope into other people, including Mary and Joseph, who were still figuring out just what it meant to be the mother, the earthly mother and father of the child of God, right? They're they're trying to sort through all of this. For us, I think, Simeon and Anna reveal some things about hope and its power that I think we can apply to our lives. And so for those of you who are sitting there going, all right, he's already quite a ways into it and we have not started filling out our form yet. Here we go. Hope 
sees beyond. That's the first thing that we need to understand. Hope sees beyond. Hope is the fuel of faith and dreams and possibilities. Hope is that whisper of maybe, just maybe. It's the spark in the cold darkness that kind of catches flame and brightens everything up and warms everything up, you know? It's kind of like that first flicker of light of a new morning. No matter how bad your past has been, no matter what kind of problems and struggles you have faced or maybe you're facing now, no matter what kind of season of darkness or pain that you are in, let me encourage you this morning not to abandon hope. Hope is still alive. Even in our deepest pain, our most hopeless circumstances, our most difficult struggles, hope can chase away the darkness and the uncertainty. Hope is alive because God is alive and God is with us. Romans 8 is a very well-known chapter in the Bible. Uh, we, we like that very first verse that's in there that says there is no condemnation for those who belong to Jesus Christ. We love that. We love the Romans 8, 28, all things work together for our good, for, for them that love the Lord. But there's a passage of, of Scripture that I want to point your attention to. And it says this. We were given this hope, and this is Romans 8, 24. We were given this hope when we were saved. If we already have something, we don't need to hope for it. Does that make sense? But if we look forward to something we don't yet have, we must wait patiently and confidently. And the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. Look at that verse 24 again. Basically, it says, hope that we can see is no hope at all, right? How many of you hope for something that you already have? No, we don't do that because there's no need for hope because we already have it. You see, someone put it this way. Hope exists before reality comes to pass. You can hope with all of your heart that I have a $100 bill right here in my pocket and that I might take it out and give it to you right here on the spot. You can think about it, you can expect it, you can tell yourself that you're going to believe that it's going to happen, you can hope that at the end of the service you're going to be $100 richer and you're going to walk out of here thinking, I'm, I'm going to Red Lobster today instead of McDonald's, right? But as soon as I give you the $100 bill, your hope is gone because there's no need for it. Does that make sense? You can't keep hoping that I'm going to give you a $100 bill because I've already done that. Of course, I could dash your hopes right now and say, that's not going to happen. And that's exactly what I'm going to do. That's not going to happen. So for those of you that thought, does he have a 100 I don't, okay? But hope precedes our present reality. Hope, by its very nature, exists in the uncertainty before. It exists in the questions. It exists in the doubts even. In that unclear sense of what is to come. But hope is the willingness. Hope is the desire to believe beyond our certain circumstances. Our present circumstances. Our present reality. Now I concluded 
that passage of Scripture just a moment ago with verse 26. Because, and it's just the first part of it that says this. And the Holy Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. Because that leads us to our second point. God is with us in the here and now. He's with us always. Listen to me on this church. If you don't hear anything else, hear this. With God, there is no uncertainty. As we have seen demonstrated over the last three weeks of our Tell Me the Story series, God knows your pain. God knows your challenges. God knows your struggles. He's not taken by surprise when things happen. Right? He wasn't taken by surprise when COVID hit a couple years ago. He wasn't taken by surprise when gas prices went up. Things started getting more expensive and making it more difficult for us to live. He was not surprised when you or your loved one received that dreaded diagnosis, he was not surprised when you got that call in the middle of the night that changed your life. He wasn't surprised when he heard, or when you heard that devastating news that just shattered your life or even left you in confusion or uncertainty. It didn't rock God's world. He sees you. He is here. He is Emmanuel. God with us. And this hope delivers. And this hope is embodied and it's fulfilled and it's brought into the world through this baby in Jesus. And he offers this hope to anyone who believes. It isn't a hope that's just dangled in front of us and then snatched out of the way. It's a, it's a hope that he infuses within us. And I think it's fanned by God's Holy Spirit as we dive into his word and as we pray and as we are around other people of like faith. Even in our grim circumstances, even in our deepest pain, even if we have a faintest gleam of hope, and it seems impossible that circumstances can change. Let me just reinforce the fact that God is with you. When we feel too weak to carry on, He's there. When we feel our grasp slipping, and we even have the inability to hope sometimes, the Bible says His Spirit is with us and, and His Spirit even goes to God on our behalf with, with groans and grumblings that, 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 that we don't even understand. And His Spirit restores our hope. Listen to what Isaiah says in chapter 43. When you go through the deep waters, I'll be with you. When you go through the rivers of difficulty, you will not drown. When you walk through the fire of oppression, you will not be burned up. The flames will not consume you. I hope that you feel hope in these words. I hope that you understand that no matter what your circumstance, you're not alone. Even in your darkest moment, Christ has come. Our God is with us. And that hope inspires us to carry on, to keep 
going. That's the third point in the message this morning. The Apostle Paul, he described this hope cycle kind of like this. In Romans 5, he explains that because of Jesus, because of our faith, Christ has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege where we now stand and we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing God's glory. We can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials for we know that they help us develop endurance and endurance develops strength of character and character strengthens our confident hope of salvation and this hope will not lead to disappointment. You might want to underline that part of it. This hope will not lead to disappointment, for we know how dearly God loves us because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. This hope from God's Spirit fills us. It does not put us to shame, the Bible says. It will not let us down. It will not disappoint us. Instead, it gives us a new perspective. It gives us a new growing strength to see beyond the pain and the confusion and the trials and the circumstances. I'm about tired of talking about the pandemic, but here's a story. Anybody with me on that? Okay. It's funny. Caleb and I have gone out and done some, some concerts together. And uh, he wrote a song during the pandemic, and he always introduces it the same way. I love it. He goes, anybody remember the worldwide pandemic? (laughs) Everybody does, of course, right? You know, it's like, you're just so sick of hearing it. But here's a great story. Um, Anybody ever heard of Captain Tom? Anybody heard this story of Captain Tom? It's, it's, It's great. In all the doom and gloom of the pandemic, here's what Captain Tom did. He rose as a hero, an unlikely hero at that. Tom Moore, now Captain Sir Tom Moore, since he was knighted by uh, the queen before she had passed away. He was a hundred-year-old man who single-handedly raised $40 million for the British health care system by walking a hundred laps around his garden. That's right, a hundred laps for a hundred years. And what started as a challenge from his son-in-law to donate a dollar per lap, which is roughly in England about a pound, Uh, It went viral, and his daughter posted the campaign in an online charity site, and the news spread quickly, and suddenly this World War II veteran, gripping his walker, wearing his navy blue blazer, decorated with his military medal, started walking around his garden. He became a national hero. Captain Tom was an inspiration to people. I hope I'm even the slightest bit that spry when I'm 100. I don't think I'm going to make it that long, but if I do, I hope I'm, I'm that way. But, but there's a great lesson of hope in this story because when they talked to him, listen to what Captain Tom told reporters. This is what he said. He said, the first step was the hardest. After that, I got into the swing of it and kept going. Sometimes you just got to take that step. Sometimes as we're sitting there and we're thinking, man, I don't think I can do it. I don't know if I want to do it. Sometimes you just got to go. You just got to take that first step. Isn't that true of hope? You know, as he started, I'm sure he was thinking, I don't know if I'm going to make it or not. I hope I can. But he said, I'm going to start. I'm going to try. 
And sometimes it can be so hard for us to lift our downcast, tear-filled eyes to look for that tiny spark of hope when we feel swallowed up by our pain. Sometimes that's difficult. Sometimes it can be difficult to reach beyond our troubles and grasp the outstretched hand of our Lord. Sometimes it can feel impossible to take that first step toward hope when we're weighted down by all of our burdens. But when we receive the promise of hope in God's word, we find new strength. We find new inspiration. When we think about the birth of Jesus Christ and the fact that he was willing to leave heaven to come here for us, only to die on a cross for a bunch of worthless sinners, when we think about that, that should give us hope. And then realize that he didn't stay dead. That three days later, he rose to new life. And then to think that he's promised, I'm coming back. That's when we start to discover that we can step out. That we can have this hope. That even though it's difficult and you don't know how you're going to do it, you can take that step. And the greatest Christmas can be found when we find our hope in the uncertainties. We say, God, I don't know how you're going to do it. It might not be according to the way I want to see it happen. But I trust that you've got my best interest in mind and that you work all things together for our good and for your glory. This Christmas season, we can find hope in the arrival of Jesus, the long-awaited Messiah. I'm going to ask our worship team to come, and, and I want those of us who are, those who have already placed their hope and their faith and their trust in Jesus, I want you to continue to focus on God's continued work in your personal life that's, that's in you and all around you. And focus on this. One day, as we said earlier, one day when we've already received what we hoped for, there's no need for hope anymore. One day when Jesus returns and we go to heaven, we won't need hope. We won't need faith. Because we'll be in the perfect presence of Jesus. And all of those promises that he's given to those, those who believe, those are, all, those are all going to be realized. Maybe you're here today and you've never surrendered your life to Christ. You've never made that decision. And so maybe you're, you feel a little hopeless right now. For you, that first step is to surrender your life to Christ. To confess him. As a son of God, repent of your sins, be baptized into him, and let that spark of hope turn into a flame that inspires other people, much like Simeon and Anna. 
I'm going to ask you to stand with me. If you're here today and you have a decision you want to make, maybe it's a first-time decision, maybe you're already a baptized believer, you want to place your membership here, we'd love for you to do that. Maybe you just need prayer. Maybe your situation seems hopeless and you just need some folks to pray with you. Whatever it is, would you come during this song?